This is the SF Productions Podcast Network. How I Got My Wife to Read Comics Episode 630 Can a comic book collector of over 30 years get his wife to read them? Will she let him keep them? Learn more in this podcast. Let's go to the comic book lounge with Mindy and Mark. We've got a whole set of Golden Age titles, Danger Street's Final Hurrah, Jones Return, Ghost Machine Setup, and The Lightning Round. This is How I Got My Wife to Read Comics for Sunday, January 7th, 2024. I'm Mark. And I'm Mindy. Just a reminder, you can go to sfpodcastnetwork.com to get the feed, other SF podcasts and blogs, or subscribe via your favorite podcast catcher and leave us a review. You can email sfpodcastnetwork at gmail.com, like us at facebook.com slash sfppn. Check out Instagram at sfpodnetwork, or call us at 614-321-9737. That's 614-321-9SFP. It's post-holidays, and we've got four weeks to cover, starting with a four-pack of DC's New Golden Age. Justice Society of America, number eight, by Johns, Janin, and Belair. Alan Scott, Green Lantern, number three of six, by Sheridan, Tormey, and Herms. Jay Garrick, The Flash, number three, by Adams, Ortel, Toyi, and Guerrero. And Wesley Dodds, The Sandman, number two, by Venditti, Rosmo, and Placencia. JSA gives us our first real look at Red Lantern after hints in this and the GL title. We begin in Moscow, current day. A girl is being accosted by thugs, but it turns out she's the one in control and is revealed as the new Red Lantern. She kills all but one of them, who is ordered to take me to my father. Cut to a JSA briefing about Ruby Sokoff, a gemstone name just like Alan's daughter Jade. I didn't catch that. Yeah. She gained her power over the Crimson Flame on her 13th birthday and is responsible for dozens of deaths. They know she's searching for her father, but Alan says he's dead. Alan watched him implode back in 48. The revised history shows us that the original Red Lantern was one of the JSA's oldest adversaries. Of course, Huntress knows of Ruby as a JSA member in her ex-history or ex-future and wants to save her. Alan won't have it, and he storms off. So, just to interject here, Mark, is this Red Lantern in any way related to the Rainbow Lanterns of the... We don't know yet. Okay. So we go back to Mother Russia and a set of guards who are quickly dispatched by Ruby, both outside and inside a building. Alan confronts her there, and as she shoots out a beam at him, he sees Vladimir, a.k.a. the Golden Age Red Lantern, in the construct. Alan dispatches the beam and knocks Ruby down. Back to JSA HQ with the team there doing a walk and talk. Helena is making plans to get the new slash old JSA back together. Icicles being prepped. Jack Knight, the 90s star man, is retired, but Stargirl is interested in Kyle, his son, who's currently five years old. Helena is convinced her reason for coming to this time is to save the current villains and wants to try to bring Solomon Grundy into the fold, which didn't work in the last issue. Salem thinks it's a waste of time at best. Jakeem tells Salem she can and should leave as they've got magic covered. Courtney mentions the Harlequin's son. Perhaps he's already turning from evil? 
back to the lanterns now hanging out in a bar and having a long conversation. Ellen tries to convince Ruby that her father is dead, but she's convinced he's lying. He plans to hand her over to the Russian authorities, except that they are the ones who kept her locked up for testing. Instead, he asks her to come and talk with Helena. As they fly off, we see a man in a tattered cloak. Alan Scott found her before I could. Yes, it's disappointing. Of course I'm sorry, but this time travel stuff isn't easy, you know. Grief. Legionnaire out. He's revealed as Pharaoh Lad? We knew that a Golden Age Legionnaire was coming, but Pharaoh Lad? He was, or will be, a member of the LSH. First appearance in Adventure Comics number 346 in 1966. He had the power to mimic iron, gaining super strength and durability. He died in battle, with a clone later replacing him. A later reboot had him as a 20th century Terran. GL's book begins back in the 40s, with Doybee driving a mysterious man around in his cab. Meanwhile, Alan is down at the docks, an apparent hangout of the closeted gaze. Alan is trying to find out what happened to Tommy, but a police raid interrupts him. Alan just sees the cops as doing their job. Homosexuality is illegal, after all. Alan goes down to the morgue along with Jay to examine Tommy's body. Jay knows that Alan knows more than he's admitting. Alan notes that the cops are unlikely to investigate Tommy's death due to his predilections. Jay basically says things will get better. Alan says he'll follow up alone, but it's too late. The society has already assigned someone to the case, someone called the Spectre. We find Jim Corrigan conning a thug for information, finally ripping what he needs from the thug's brain, then sending him off, likely to hell. Jay arrives, and they go to another police precinct to look through the files. Tommy's file is there, but it's empty. Jim, who is technically still a cop, notes that a file would never have been created if the cops wanted to bury the case. Someone took the info from the file. Spectre notes that GL is likely being framed, which makes sense considering what he's hiding about his personal life. Back to Doiby taking the same guy on another fair, a guy with glowing red eyes. Then back to the heroic pair. Spectre tells GL he's not responsible for these deaths, and he is not, in God's eyes, sinning. Since Spectre knows the big guy, he's an impeccable source. If God didn't want you to love, then how could you? Jim mentions God's voice, and Jay remembers the voices in his head. Spectre makes plans to interrogate everyone involved with the Crimson Flame project, not a long list, but Alan has a hunch and flies off. Spectre tells him to find that monster and bring him to me. The mysterious man has now come to Alan's apartment, and Alan confronts him there. Johnny! Red Lantern wallops him and then says something in Russian, my love. Jay's title starts in 1941 with the JSA, Dr. Fate, Hawkman, GL, The Atom, and Jay, rummaging through a secret German cloning lab with plans to make a super soldier. Dr. Elemental, the big bad, interrupts them, then proceeds to easily stop the heroes until Judy arrives from the future to help them out, despite Jay's orders not to do so. Mark? Yes. Did you think about the Flash TV series and how the daughter of that Flash kept coming back? Hmm. in time and i was like thinking boy i wonder if they took that idea from there because otherwise why would people keep coming back to their own you know prior to their past and seeing their parents that just makes no sense (laughs) 
Elemental escapes in a rocket, and Judy, with Jay's assistance, tries to follow him, only to require Jay's help to save her. Back to current day, Jay and Judy argue over her time-traveling antics. It's just a blur to the other heroes. Terrific provides wibbly-wobbly explanation about how Judy's reappearance is changing history and memories. She's also brought back Dr. Elemental, and they need to stop him. Judy can't remember his face, but Terrific has an idea. After a quick chat between Judy and Courtney, we go to the Terrific lab, only to find Quiz Kid and Fair Play a new sidekick. He's Terrific's genetic son, retrieved from Apocalypse over in the Flash series. The two kids have become good friends and have built a memory imager that can take your memories and put them on screen. Judy gives it a shot, and they discover that Dr. Elemental is Professor Hughes, the man responsible for me becoming the Flash. In the Golden Age, Jay was a college student, and Hughes was his advisor and a very minor character. It looks like we're about to get a partial reset of Jay's origin story. Wesley's story is the one with the least connection to the other plot lines. It's more of a continuation of 1990s Sandman mystery theater. Wesley is at the morgue investigating the body that was burned while torching Dodd's home. The coroner arrives and provides some info. The guy was already dead before the fire. Later, Wesley awakens in his new apartment to find Diane and the family friend providing the place. She sees that the burned man got a dishonorable discharge. The family friend tells Wesley not to dwell on it. He watched the elder Dodd become paranoid. Back to the arson site, with Wesley now in uniform. He's attacked by his evil doppelganger, and there's a long tussle, resulting in Dodd's mask coming off. He breathes in his own smoke gun fumes. What will he dream about? I don't like this one quite as much as I liked Sandman Mystery Theater. Right. But I like it because I miss Sandman Mystery Theater. (laughs) Danger Street, book 12 from DC Black Label by King, Fornays, and Stewart. Tom King's attempt to use all the characters from an obscure 70s DC anthology title roars to a conclusion. Can King land the plane? We're back in the Commodore's plane, speaking of planes, where he's being held by the outsiders. Suddenly, the diamond arm comes to life and crawls off the plane. Oh, and the outsiders are suddenly no longer freaks, just back to being regular teenagers. We cut to Lady Cop's kitchen. The ceremony has been completed. The dead have been brought back to life. Travis, Jack, and good looks of the dingbats. Orion reminds them that the sky has no mercy for gods or men a.k.a. the sky is actually falling and the universe is being destroyed. Good looks, now with the soul of Atlas, must take over his duties and hold up the sky forever. Lady Cop just wants a cup of coffee. The dingbats reunite and Crunch has some grapes. Orion also gives Creeper, who thinks he's not a superhero, you see, I'm a celebrity, some tough love. The gods are real and they are us, and we shall be worthy of our worship. Back to the plane, where the Commodore realizes the Outsiders no longer have powers, and so he can now have them ejected. Unfortunately, the Feds have seized all the assets of the GT Corporation, as the murders and fraud have all come out into the open. Abdul says, anyway, we should probably get off the plane. It's not ours anymore. Back to Lady Cop, who tells the dingbats what needs to be done. They argue for a while, but eventually come to a conclusion. Good looks will take over Atlas's duties, and the others will go keep him company for all eternity. Just outside, the diamond arm and metamorpho reunite and reintegrate. 
Back to the Commodore and Abdul on the road. Abdul spoke to Manhunter and found out that the entire Manhunter cult was put in place 2,000 years ago just to stop the GT Corporation today. Why? Well, Manhunter was never told that part of the story. Abdul calls an Uber and leaves the Commodore on the road. The dingbats go off to Valhalla or whatever, as the others wish them well. Then Lady Cop arrests the others as there were a number of crimes committed. She then begins the drive back home along with the now dull helmet of fate. She stops in the middle of nowhere, asking the helmet for answers. She tries to wait him out following police procedure, but no dice. The Lord of Chaos arrives and she draws her gun on him. Lady Cop, come on, I'm a god. Wouldn't be my first. (laughs) New gods, that hardly counts. He tries to explain the concepts of order and chaos, thanks her for her service, and walks away with the helmet. Oh, and what would the helmet had said? Once upon a time, in a far-off kingdom. Lady Cop returns to Danger Street and writes up the outsiders, who have now taken over the dingbat's role as a thorn in her side. A final nine-panel page wraps things up. So did we ever learn what or who caused the, I mean, I know it was the playground thing, but who was it who split the green team and the outsiders? And why did they turn back? I think it's going to be the Lord of Order or the Lord of Chaos created the thing. And the end, it's basically because that ceremony was held, the mystic ceremony. And as the mystic ceremony finished, that's when the kids stopped being the freaks. But we don't know why that ceremony did it or anything. Not really. Eh, okay. Like I said. Yeah. <laughs> any, any landing you walk away from. <laughs> okay. Love Everlasting number 11 from Image by King, Hollingsworth, and Cowles. The meta romance returns in a new volume. It seems we're back on the main track with a Western called Just West of Love. It begins with the classic trope, a sheriff about to shoot it out with a gang of ruffians, while his love, Joan of course, pleads for him to run instead. We then flash back to their meeting. Joan's dad is a drunk, and Sheriff Henry Duff drops dad off at the Peterson place. He's there with his brother and deputy Jake, who doesn't say much. Henry takes a shine to Joan, and there's a long courtship. Henry is quick with a joke, but doesn't say much about himself. Just as they're about to kiss, there's a gunshot. Joan's dad was killed by one of the Brennan brothers after dad vomited all over his clean shirt. Henry goes to arrest Brennan, whose brothers get involved. Henry suggests a one-on-one shootout the next day, and we're back where we started. Henry gets to kiss Joan and then walks out to his fate. Joan sees her love shot in the back of the head by one of the Brennan brothers. He dies in her arms as Jake stands beside her. Jake takes revenge killing all but one of the Brennan brothers, with the final one taking off for the hills. Jake spends three years tracking him down, then returns to Joan to tell her he's going to have a final shootout. He also admits he's been in love with Joan since they first met, but didn't do anything about it because of his brother. The shootout is held the next day, and both parties shoot the other. Will Joan have another love die in her arms? Apparently not, because Jake improbably survives what should have been a mortal injury. Joan nurses him back to health and over time falls in love with him. Jake is much more open about himself. Joan says she assumed her dad would get himself killed one day and secretly hoped he would just get it over with. During a ride, Jake proposed to Joan and she accepts. He looks away for a moment and Joan is gone. Jake is despondent and vows to find and love Joan again. Yes, 
This is the origin story of the taciturn cowboy we've seen throughout the title. From the next issue cover, it looks like we will continue following Jake's story. Well, we've got a lot more ground to cover, so I'm activating... The Lightning Round. Geiger, Ground Zero Number 2 from Image Ghost Machine by Johns, Frank, Anderson, and Lee. This wrap-up of Geiger's origin, Molotov finds Geiger and after another blow-up, jams containment rods in his back controlling his energy. A soldier finds them and is killed by Molotov for his troubles. They form an unlikely alliance. Relearn Molotov created tech for the Ruskies that allowed nuclear devices to continue to have impact after their use, basically infecting nearby molecules and causing the world they now live in. Molotov learns that his family is dead and the pair go their separate ways. Next, Ghost Machine, the heroic team-up book. Now, I want to note that... Jeff Johns, who's one of the creators of this whole ghost machine thing, it was just apparently announced he's exclusive now to Image, which means his DC stuff is going to end, including the JSA stuff we were just talking about. So that's going to run 12 issues, and then I'm guessing it's all going to be thrown away. (laughs) (sighs) (sighs) Harley Quinn, Black and White and Redder number 6. In the probable final issue, all the color anthologies ran for six issues, we get three stories with only one worth talking about. Harley's All the Way Down by Redondo, Abbott, and Shea. We see Harley on another wacky Gotham adventure. The Bat family asks why Harley is there, and she takes that opportunity to burst off the panel and speak directly to the reader. We see her instantly change into various versions of herself, explaining her origins on a Batman cartoon through the moves to comics, games, and films. More violent, less violent, depressed, kid-friendly, sexy, darker, funnier, government tool, villain, anti-hero, hero? Her core concept? I transcend. And she's ready for whatever DC and the WB want to throw at her. Fire and Ice, welcome to Smallville number five. There's a fire in Smallville, and Ice assumes fire started it, but was actually Honey, the villainess, trying to frame her. Grodd's sister bonds with B. Tora finds Rocky at work in a stupor, but doesn't realize it. Turns out she's been possessed by a mask that's the final piece of cooey, cooey, cooey. The other villains either start robbing the town or come up with fundraising schemes. Rocky slash cooey outs herself and sends vines everywhere. Martha calls the heroes, The Crave is at the hospital and asking for Tora. They are just throwing everything at the wall here. Superman Lost, number 9 of 10, by Priest, Jurgens, Breeding, Pagulayan, Paz, and Cox. By the way, there have been multiple changes in the creative team throughout this miniseries, which is not a good thing. Anyway, Clark finds out that Lois has cancer and that Lex gave it to her. He's ready to confront Lex, but she talks him down. You want to fight for something? Fight for us. Oh, and Lex actually had a cure for Lois's cancer, which he gives her. It was all Lex's scheme to get Clark to attack him. The whole issue cuts back to ways that Lex imagines Clark will kill him, fly through him, throw him into space, vaporize him, but it never happens. Bruce arrives with a guest. It's Hope, who has now found Earth. Oh, and she's pregnant. Announcer Bot, how can the folks find us online? Go to sfpodcastnetwork.com to get the feed, other SF podcasts, and blogs. 
subscribe via your favorite podcast catcher and leave us a review. You can email sfpodcastnetwork at gmail.com. Like us at facebook.com slash sfppn. Check out Instagram at sfpodnetwork. Call us at 614-321-9737. That's 614-321-9SFP. Back to you, Mark. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.